Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. All right. Well, as you know, you've been hearing these last couple weeks, this is the season of Advent. I don't have to tell you that. We've been describing that. You know, the Greek uh, term or the Latin term, I should say, is the coming or the arrival. And so we've had two candles now lit while we were in our worship time. The first one representing hope. And we read to you, uh, we read together Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, the second one, the candle or the advent of peace. You can kind of see the progression of these. There's the hope of his coming and then the peace that he will bring. And then finally the joy, and that is candle number three, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us. Don't you love how God puts it the way he does? It's no second thought there. You know, maybe a child will come, you know, if I feel like it. If you're good, I'll let my son come or I'll send my son. No, that's not what he says. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Boy, that wouldn't cause any problems, would it? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Aren't you thankful for that? Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we're going to dwell on some of that here in just a few minutes. I'll reiterate some of those thoughts. But let's light our candles this morning as we just remember those. Uh, and then um, next week, we'll light the fourth candle, the pink one, in honor of Christ's birth. And then on our Christmas Eve service, you have to you have to come to the Christmas Eve service if you want to see the white one lit. Okay, so it's got to be here. And I hope you will come because we've got a great program planned it's going to be wonderful, simple, but it's going to be very uh, filled with a lot of information from the scriptures as you get also an opportunity to sing. So 5.30, won't keep you for a long time, a couple, three, four hours, and uh, you'll be done. Maybe Theo will make some cookies and we'll be fine. And so uh, we'll be in good shape if that's the case. But please come, invite your, it's a great time to invite somebody to come. You know, it's usually during the holiday times, Easter, the major events where people that don't normally go to church will come. Because they just feel it in their heart that that's the right thing to do. Or maybe they were raised as a child to do that. And so if somebody's put on your mind, if the Spirit puts somebody on your mind, at least invite them. That's all you're called to do. And let God do the work. Okay? Now, um, <clears throat> as much as those Advent titles, if you will, uh, define for us who Jesus is in his own right... Uh, we are also aware that they are not the only attributes of him. We could add the title of faithful servant, faithful servant. And so that's where we're going this morning as we're going to be looking again in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, but before we get there and I have you stand, I want to say all of this about his faithful servanthood because as much as we understand and try to live our lives according to the word of the Lord, and I know each of you do in your own way, those of you who are believers, you you study, you, you pay attention to what is written in the Word of God, and you do everything that you know how to live according to His Word. Uh, but the reality is there is no one who is truly faithful to the Father like His Son. There is no one who is truly faithful to Him. And now, I want you to understand that I'm not saying that doesn't mean we don't have value. You don't have value. Certainly that is the case. How much value do you have? You answer the question. What did God do to show the value that you have? Amen. He sent his son, right? If nothing else, John 3.16, most remarkable, one of the most remarkable verses of truth that there is. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. 
That's how much value you have. But it does mean also, when it comes to being faithful to the Father, you and I have to be in agreement on this with God, not with me, but with God, that we fall short. If you look at your life, you can identify with that. Nobody has to tell you. I don't have to tell you. You may deny it, but you will honestly say, if you're being honest, I fall short. I do and I try, but I fall short. And scripture tells us that only he is the perfectly faithful one who is of God. And scripture reiterates that many times over, of which also we are now going to hear again in Matthew chapter 12. Now I know it's Christmas and you sang lovely. You sounded like the angels in heaven themselves. Uh, It was beautiful to hear you singing. And I know you want a Christmas message, and and I'm going to deliver to you a Christmas message. Um, Not me, but several others will give you a message on Christmas Eve. So you can come next week. We'll talk more about Christmas and who Jesus is. Uh, But I want you to understand this morning that Christmas is not just about the birth of Christ. Christmas is just the beginning. It's just the foundation point. In fact, we know from Scripture and other places that the birth of Christ is the fulfillment of all that God said or the the beginning of the fulfillment of all that God said he would do with Jesus literally with him on the earth, which is what the angel Gabriel told Mary. So just to satisfy your Christmas longing in Scripture, let's read Luke 1. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. There you go with that definitive statement. And you shall call his name Jesus I love this in verse 32. He will be great. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Father, that your son is great. Can we just pray about that for just a second and let that sink in? Father, thank you that your son is great, that there is no one like him. Father, we praise you and thank you for that. And Luke says, according to Gabriel, he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And don't you love this? And his kingdom will have no end. Everything in this life that you and I know comes to a conclusion at some point, doesn't it? Everything changes. Life begins and life ends. But his kingdom will have no end. And his kingdom will never end because what Matthew says of him in our text for today, that he is the faithful son who serves his father faithfully. And perfectly, we could add. So I've titled the message this morning, if you haven't already guessed, Jesus, the, and I put that in italics or in quotes rather, the faithful servant of the Father. Now, as I'm processing these things myself, I'm just simply trying to give to you what I'm processing throughout the week in that I think we miss an eternal and very critical and important truth when we don't see Jesus as being the one who is everything for us and to us. If we try to fit ourselves into something that only God can do in us and through us, we miss the point. And so I hope you feel that and hear that throughout God's word as we study it each week. Well, let's stand together and let's read Matthew chapter chapter 12. I want to back up to last week's text just to give you the full context here in your mind because I know it's been a week. For some of you, you may not have picked up your Bible this week and you're just uh, needing to get refocused. So let's go back to verse 9 and then we'll read the remainder of this as our text today. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue and a man who was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, 
What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now this begins our text for today. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. All right, amen. You may be seated. I understand that that's a lot, uh, but we really need to look at the full context to get the point of what's happening here in the, in the context. If you remember last time, uh, I said to you last week that we learned that Jesus was willing to set aside the Sabbath for one real particular reason. The main reason in the context of it was for the healing of this man to show that the value of a human being is far greater than just keeping the value, or that's what it is, keeping the law or a set of regulations, uh, even if they be written in God's word. Now that doesn't mean that God's word is invaluable. It doesn't mean it's not perfect in all of its parts, but Jesus was refocusing the legalists to help them to see that I am here as God to show you that there is hope in me. This man has a need. That's far greater in God's mind, my father's mind, Jesus would say basically, than it is just to keep the law. But you remember, as we just read in the text again, to remind ourselves that they got really angry with him and sought a way to to push him away. And so the point of that whole message was not for any other reason, but to show that God is willing to do whatever is necessary to help people. And aren't you thankful for that? That God is willing to do whatever is necessary to help people. I don't know if you've done this for a while, but you should go back in your minds and just recount the number of times that God makes promises to his people of how he'll care for them, how he'll care for you in every way. And you'll see these truths come to life. And you just rejoice in that. You just be so thankful that you have a heavenly father that will provide everything that you need. Again, isn't it wonderful that he defines him as a wonderful counselor? Do you need a counselor? Do you need somebody to talk to? You know, there are people in this life that say, I don't have anybody to talk to. And they mean that literally. Because most of the time, and let's be honest, when we are sharing our deepest needs, there are times where we want somebody to hear us so badly because we're hurting internally, but yet they turn it around and start talking about their own needs. You ever been in a conversation like that? Now, that's not wrong. And we, we, but the point is just that, is that we all have many needs. And sometimes people pay people in order to listen to them. We have a counseling ministry here at the church that's doing a marvelous job from everything that we can tell. It's not a part of our church, but they do rent the building from us. And they're growing by leaps and bounds, adding counselors, uh, giving people the word of God, precious people who uh, serve the Lord in that way, because people have great needs. They need to talk to someone. Aren't we so thankful that we have the most wonderful counselor of all counselors? He is our mighty God. And so he was saying simply to those legalists, look, I'm here. I can fix the problems. 
Again, we've said many times before studying this that if they just had believed him, he would have set up his heavenly kingdom right then, or rather his earthly kingdom then, but they didn't. And so he moved on, and that's the blessing that you and I had. So what they were really more interested in is, is what I said to the early service, and that is the big, the big three. You know what the big three are? Power, control, and money. That's what they were after. And Jesus was going to get in the way of those three things. You could add a couple others if you wanted. Maybe you can come up with some other topics, subjects there. But mainly those are it. And Jesus was infringing on their business affairs. And they were getting lost in all of that. But not Jesus. As God in the flesh, he proved that his care was for people over all things. And again, I hope that you hear that especially now as we're at such a precious time remembering his birth. He came because he cares about you and he has the ability to provide everything that you need. Now, to prove all of that truth further, Matthew adds what he does here, that Jesus left in the context, he left that setting of the synagogue, which was probably about a week later, we said that last time, in a different setting, and healed everybody who had need of his care. Again, we see that no matter what was going on in the situation or the setting, Jesus never lost his focus. He always kept to his father's plan. He didn't get distracted. He didn't somehow forget what he was supposed to be doing. He didn't miss the point. He didn't get frustrated. Well, he got frustrated a couple times, but mainly he just stuck to the plan. Why? Because he was there to do the father's will. And he made that very, very clear never losing his purpose. And then Matthew adds this remarkable statement in verse 16. And I say remarkable because it kind of leaves us with a little bit of a question. He asked who, uh, he said to them, do not tell who I am, basically. I don't want you to tell anybody. Now, we've thought about this before as we've watched him do healings and miracles. The question would be, if we were there with Jesus, we'd be saying, but but Why? Why do you not want me to tell? I have to tell. And we know that there were many that did tell. Well, we're glad we asked the question. I'm glad you asked the question because Matthew brings Isaiah into this this now and says, here's the answer to your question. This is why he didn't do it. Look at verse 17. It was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now, Matthew doesn't say where this comes from in Isaiah's record, but we know now that the chapters and the verses have been added. It's from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, written hundreds of years before the fulfillment of all of this, meaning there's a much bigger picture in all of this. It's not just what was happening in the nitty-gritty. And again, we could tangent off of that and even come up with a whole other message that what you're going through right now in your relationship with the Lord may not even be about you. There is always a much bigger picture to what God is doing in the life of his people. What you experience, what I experience in our daily life is something that we're very well aware of and we think life is all centered on us because we're basically selfish people. But the reality is God is working a much bigger picture, and this becomes very evident here. Number one is to prove that Scripture really does point to Jesus. And this is not a a new thing for those who have been walking with the Lord or students of the Scripture. Uh, That's very apparent. But secondly, not only that, but it points to Jesus and defines him for us, which is what we really need. We don't just need the pointer to him, but our sinful hearts need to know him 
We need to understand his character and his nature. And I know you know that along with me because how many times during the week do you find yourself missing the reality and the truth of Jesus in your life? In other words, we'll get so caught up in something that we're dealing with that we'll not forget about him, but somehow the moment becomes much more critical to us than remembering we have a God, a Savior, who is able to fulfill everything that we need him to fulfill in us. It's something we really need to remember. Specifically now, in this case, and what we want to point out this morning, is that Jesus is the faithful servant of his Father. And Isaiah says this, In several ways. I'm going to give you six of them. There are probably more, but we'll just give you six of them and we'll go through them quickly. Notice verse 18 Jesus is God's servant. Jesus is God's servant. Behold, Isaiah says, my servant. Now that's an interesting statement and it could cause some alarm here, but don't be alarmed by it because as you do a word study, you begin to find out and in context that the word servant is not the usual word that we would think of from the ancient Greek. In that time, the word was often translated son. And so when a servant, the idea is when a servant was trusted in love, loved by the master, then that was, and that was the case, uh, in that case, rather, he was considered to be more like a son. Yes, he was a servant, not of the blood of the family member, of the the master, but he was loved by the master because of his faithfulness, and so he was considered to be a son. And so Isaiah refers here to Jesus as the servant of the father, but what he is really saying is that Jesus is the most beloved, faithful son who serves his father out of love and devotion. Now again... We could stop there, and I want you to process that, because already what we're hearing the Spirit say to us is, let me paint you a picture of the Son. Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. Here He is. He is faithful. He is faithful in everything He does for the Father. He misses nothing. In fact, Jesus identified that, remember? I only do what the Father tells me. Really? what he said. I only do what the Father tells me. And we begin to see in ourselves this distinction between us and him, which is the point. That's what we need to see, how different he is from us. You've heard many times that Jesus is to be the model in this life, and that's true. And if you hold to that, ask yourself the question, when you see yourself alongside of Jesus, how are you measuring up? Comparing his faithfulness to your faithfulness. It's an interesting and very challenging question. Your first thought might be, well, when I think about all the things I do for the Lord and I have done, my service to him, um, I don't feel like I'm that far off, maybe. Maybe that's what you feel. You look at how you spend your time and what you try to do for God and And that's really all you can offer because that's really all we can look at is what we do. But let me help us by remembering this, and that is is this Christian life is not about what we do. It's about who we are. I hope you don't ever forget that. I have to remind myself of that regularly. 
God is not, if we go back even to the context from last week, God is not so concerned about what we do for him. Yes, it's important. Don't miss that. I'm not saying he's not. It is critical that we live this life out in our actions according to James and other passages of Scripture. But really what God is after is that we be the person that he wants us to be internally. So we could easily say or more clearly say this life is not about doing. This life is about being. It's not about doing the Christian life. It's about being a Christian. And that makes all the difference in the world. Jesus was able to come and do what he did, yes, because of who he was, but mainly because he was just being a faithful servant. That's the distinction. You and I, quite honestly, would have a lot less issues in this life with one another and with others and even with God if we would just humble ourselves and just be a servant and be faithful and not try to manipulate the situation. But boy, that's where we get off track a lot of times, isn't it? So <clears throat> that's number one. Now, Isaiah secondly says in verse 18 again, the second part of it, Jesus serves because the Father chose him to serve. Not only is he the Father's servant, but he was chosen by the Father. Look at again, verse 18, whom I have chosen. He is my servant. I have chosen him. Now, again, sometimes we feel the, the sting of these kind of statements and we think, oh, what's, what's happening here? What does that really mean? Well, there is some difficulty in our humanness of understanding, but you don't need to be confused or alarmed by it. And this is certainly not a passage of Scripture that some might say that this is proof that Jesus is an angel. He's a created being. Isaiah is identifying that or he is uh, someone that, uh, as I said, created, that God created. That's not what's happening here. The meaning to be chosen was also a common Greek phrase used that when a child was adopted into a family, that child was brought in solely by the choice of the father. And because the father chose him to be a son, there was nothing that was going to change that. It was irrevocable, meaning it was a done deal. He could never be excluded or disqualified from the family. He was not blood, but because the father said, this will be my son, then it was written in stone, so to speak. So in this verse then, God is saying, basically, I chose Jesus for the task of being my faithful servant. Why? Because he is already my beloved son. And that's why he's doing what he's doing. And nothing will ever change that, which is why the father says of Jesus in again, verse 18, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. He is my faithful servant. I have chosen him for this task because he is my faithful servant and I am greatly pleased with him, which God would affirm and has already affirmed actually in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 3, verse 17. Well, actually, it was not in the Sermon on the Mount. It was at the baptism. A voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so now Matthew picks up on that same thing from Isaiah chapter 42, and he's reminding the people, hey, you've heard this once. You've heard this once. And later at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. This is when Peter, James, and John were taken up on the mountain and they saw the glory of the Lord. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Boy, if we would just take that one message right there and just listen to Jesus. 
wouldn't our lives be a lot better? Just listen to him. And everything will get better. Does that mean it'll get perfect? No. Jesus has already told us that. This world will have its own troubles. But if we just listen to him and be the faithful servant that he is to his own father, to him, then things will be far different. Now, beyond that, there is an underlying point in all this, I think, which is no other person, person I'm talking about, in their humanness has ever been told by the father that they're well-pleasing to him. No one. God has never said to an individual other than Jesus, this person I am well pleased. Nowhere in scripture you're going to find that. Only his son is referred to that way. Meaning it is not possible for you and me to be pleasing to God unless we come through his son. That's the important point. It is only Jesus who is pleasing to the Father, which is why the Apostle Paul later will say in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in the flesh means without the Spirit in them, and he's going to qualify that in just a second in Romans 8. Here's the point. You and I have no ability to please the Father by our own selves or in our own free will. We can't do it. Only through Jesus in us, through the power of his Spirit living in us, are we pleasing to the Father? Don't think for a second, beloved, that you can conjure up some pleasing notion in the Father outside of Jesus, outside of recognizing him as your Savior and the one who is your advocate before the Father and be pleasing to him. You cannot. I cannot. Nobody can do that. Paul says in verse 9 of Romans 8, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Don't you love the qualifier there? You know how you're pleasing to the Lord? If the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that's a key point. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, listen carefully. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You know, again, how many times have we said, God is very clear with his words. God doesn't mix his message. It is only through the power of the Son's work and the work of the Spirit in us that we are pleasing to God at all. Doesn't that just grate against your flesh? Now you may say, no, it really doesn't. Well, yes, it does. There are many times throughout our week where our flesh gets fired up because somebody didn't listen to us, because some advice wasn't taken by us, because somebody countered our thought and the way we feel about something, or the way we think about something. We feel our flesh rise up because we want to be heard. We want to know that we've made a difference. And people will hear us and respond to what we have felt and said. No matter what the situation is, that's kind of what comes out. Well, that's all just of the flesh. Because what God is saying is that we have no ability to do anything in ourselves other than through the power of the living Christ. And that's also made clear in Colossians 1. You can go there if you want to. And you can see how the writer, Paul, to the church in Colossae writes and says, Jesus is the one who holds all things together. And many other attributes about him. Meaning again, the whole point is that outside of the Holy Spirit living in you and me, we have nothing to offer to God. In fact, Isaiah said years earlier in chapter 64, again back to his prophecy, 
all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Is that the way you feel about yourself? You may if you're thinking properly. But in our normal day, today thoughts, we have this tendency at least that pushes us to feel like we have something of value. Well, we do in many ways. We've already identified that we have value to God. That's why he came. But not by ourselves. And that's really the point. And, and if you haven't gotten this by now, the whole issue here is God saying throughout Matthew's letter and every other book in the scriptures, he's doing a comparison between us and Jesus. Here's you. Here's my son. Or I should reverse that. Here's you. Here's my son. Look at him. Compare yourself to him. Do your measuring to him and see where you stand. In this message, as Isaiah would lay it out, filthy rags, is simply saying in our best effort to be holy is futile. And so futile, he says, he compares, get this now, he compares our righteous deeds, not our sinful deeds, our righteous deeds to filthy garments. And you know, you've studied the scripture, you know that that's referring to uh, the days of a woman's uh, menstrual impurity, filthy rags. That's how they compare to the righteousness of God. We can do nothing to be righteous in the presence of God. Paul would describe this of himself as he looks back on his life as a religious person in Judaism and then comes to the awareness. And he gives us all this in Philippians 3. He says, hey, you want to see how I thought of myself? Circumcised on the eighth day? That's following the law. If you know the law, that's what a Jew had to do. Of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, and he kind of builds this crescendo. I'm, cru- I'm, I'm circumcised, I'm of Israel, but check this one out. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now that meant that Benjamin was one of the two southern tribes, Judah, along with the other one, who was the other one, who held on to their relationship of the Davidic dynasty, David's dynasty. And so they were looked at, Paul is saying, look, I didn't abandon David. The northern tribes did that, but I remained faithful. That's who I was. So Philippians 3 again, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You compare me with the other Hebrews, boy, that's me. I'm on the top. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, here's how zealous I was. I persecuted the church. Can you imagine? As to righteousness, which is of the law, found blameless. In other words, I did everything the law required of me to do. And then he comes to the other side of himself after coming to the awareness of himself being nothing in his own righteousness and says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, when I see Jesus, I realize everything I've done and my own attempts have been nothing. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you love how he says that? The value of knowing Jesus as Lord. How many of you this morning would say, I cannot believe the value that I have in my heart of knowing Jesus as Lord of my life? That's what Paul's saying. There's nothing that surpasses that. Again, that doesn't mean you have no earthly value. You certainly do. You have eternal value, but nothing you do will gain value. Your value comes from knowing and following Jesus. 
And Jesus is our example. That's the point. Now, let's go on here into the next part that Isaiah says here. Don't be thrown off by the next part where he says, I will put my spirit on him. That doesn't mean that Jesus was in need of the spirit's filling. That's not a, another point to say Jesus was created. And we know that because back in Matthew 1, when Gabriel gave the message to Mary, he says that he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And if you took it another step, you could say, well, we're told in Luke 1 that John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, would be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Well, if Jesus is God, how much more is he going to be filled with the Spirit? He'll never be separated from the Spirit. Now, this is where our heads swim a little bit, and we don't understand it fully because only God can do this. The important point is to understand, according to what Isaiah is saying, that in his humanness, in his full humanness, while he was here on the earth, Jesus needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He needed the power of the Spirit to help him to accomplish everything that the Father was requiring of him in his humanness. In fact, one writer said this, he had human feelings and human emotions. He was hungry and thirsty. He became tired and felt pain and sorrow. Therefore, his humanness received the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in order for it to function in concert with his deity. That's a great statement. He couldn't do what God had called him to do without the Spirit of God filling him. And again, that's what Isaiah is pointing to him. And so we just need to understand that as God, he didn't need anything. He was perfectly able to accomplish everything, but as man, he needed the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what the Father had given to him to do. Somebody asked the other day, why was it that Jesus needed to be baptized? Well, did Jesus need to be baptized? Not in his deity. But you remember when he comes up out of the water, he says, this is to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, as a man, it's necessary for you to see that I have come to fulfill all that the Father has put on me, to take the sins of mankind upon myself. Okay, so in his humanness, just understand he needed the power of the Spirit. Now thirdly, as God's servant, Jesus offers spiritual freedom to anyone who humbles themselves. Very key point. Jesus offers spiritual freedom to anyone who humbles themselves. You know as well as I do, if you've been listening to these messages for any length of time or the scriptures, that the Jews believed that the Messiah was for them. That when the Messiah comes, he will be for Israel. And that was true in a certain sense, but that was not true from the beginning. In fact, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he made that very clear in chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Meaning that God came for everyone not just the Jews. Now, we understand historically in the context of all that works in all that, the reality is, yes, God first came to a chosen people, the Hebrews, but in God's mind and his plan of action was to be the blessing to all families, for everybody who would turn themselves, turn to him, turn themselves to him. And, and Jesus proved that, that being that he came to the Gentiles as well, as much as he did the Hebrews. If you go back in, in the Gospels, you remember that he first revealed himself to a Samaritan woman. He didn't reveal himself to the Jews. A Samaritan was a half-breed, a Jew-Gentile mix. And so he revealed to her, that woman at the well, according to Mark 3, Jesus had Gentile followers early in his ministry. 
There was the Gentile centurion and many other st- uh, stories we could go back to where he, you remember he ser- healed the servant of that centurion in Matthew 8. Even said to the centurion, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And God honored that. Jesus blessed him and healed the servant. Which is really the meaning behind what Isaiah says now in back in our text, that he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Interesting, isn't it? So we have Genesis 12 saying that he'll be for everybody. Isaiah the prophet in the days of the prophecy of Israel, he tells that the Gentiles will have this justice given to them. And so you and I can again stand on the fact that no matter who we are, no matter what we're going through in this life, the Lord knows our situation. He knows the pains that we feel. He knows the struggles we're under. He knows the hurts of life. He knows the burdens that you carry. And he'll do everything necessary to help you. And why is that? Because that's why he came. To be the faithful servant that God had called him to do and to be. Matthew 5, 4. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you remember in that study... We clearly said that that was not the, oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sad. It's not that kind of mourning. It's the mourning over sin, the brokenness of the soul. Lord, I can't do it. I can't live the way I need to live in your presence. Jesus says, that's exactly right. That's why you will be comforted because you've proven that you cannot live the way that I require. Matthew 5, 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that's the idea of the same thing. Mourning over sin, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness to be God's people. And God said, you will be satisfied. Now going on in in the fourth point is Isaiah also says, as God's servant, Jesus would display himself in great humility so as to not draw the wrong attention to himself. And I really love this. If there's ever anyone who has the right to be boastful and arrogant, is it not God? Would it not be Jesus to be the most boastful person in the world? But that's not his heart. Again, look at the distinction. Look at how much our flesh wants to be on top and to be recognized. Everything out there in this world is a motivation to us to be the best to be better than somebody else. But listen, Isaiah says in verse 19, he'll not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That word quarreling means to hassle. He's not going to hassle anybody. Crying out means to scream or shout with great excitement. He's not going to scream or shout at anybody. Again, most people in our world think that to gain a following, you got to be the loudest. You got to be the biggest and the best. And that's kind of the way the world operates. But Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't dangle heaven on a string like a carrot and say, oh, you can have it if you do this or that. Here, play this little game, you know. He didn't do that, you know. If you're good enough, oh, none of that kind of thing. He never used human tactics to cause people to listen to him. His only plan was one thing, and that was to speak the truth. Just speak the truth to do what the Father gave for him to do. Now, with dignity, you understand the point there, why I have to add that, because we're told to speak the truth with love. We've been over this many times. Too often we speak the truth, but without love, or we're so loving we don't speak the truth. 
where Jesus was the perfect blend of all of that. And so the point again is he didn't need to do anything but fulfill his role as a servant to his father and then live every situation with humility and servanthood. Every situation. Again, the points you and I need to hear. The Spirit is saying to us in every situation of our lives, we are to follow Jesus where we live humbly with gentleness, servant hearts, always wanting to do what the Lord says. Our vocabulary, beloved, should be in every situation, okay, here's what we'll do about this, this, and this, but let's make sure that's what the Father really wants. Let's go to him in prayer. Remember the text of Scripture that says, you say you're going to do this, 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 and this, but you don't know that your soul is required of you? And so we say, if the Father wills, this is what we'll do. That's how Jesus lived. And that's what we're supposed to do. And all that is why he's our model for everything. We don't need to let this world upset us. We don't need to get all bent out of shape when people don't listen to us and when they don't take our advice. Even when they don't accept who Jesus is and we're trying to share with them. Even our family members. How many of you as parents or grandparents have gotten frustrated because your kids don't necessarily listen to you? That's not our job. Our job even among our family members is to just present the truth. Simply speak the truth of the word and live the word in front of them. Doing our best to do both of those. Fifthly, as God's faithful servant, he will restore the weak and the hurting. He'll restore the weak and the hurting. Notice verse 20, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Now, the reason Isaiah is using that is because both of those become an illustration of something that was very common to the people. Those of you who have played wood uh, or wind instruments and have had to use a reed you know what that is. That's that little piece that helps make the sound. But if the reed breaks, it's pretty useless. You've got to get another one. It was the same way in Jesus' day. The reed would be thrown away. It was a common thing that was, was grown, and it would be used for the flute, making music. And if it was broken, then they would just pass it off as useless. Candles like these here, once they're burnt down to the end, the wick is basically useless. There's no point in holding on to it because it's gone. There may be a little stub of it, but it just doesn't do any good. But Isaiah says, Jesus won't throw out those people. And that becomes the point. It's a physical illustration to point to two objects, which are those objects point to people's lives. You may be here this morning and you feel so broken and like the world just wants to throw you away because it has no use for you. Kind of like what I was mentioning earlier. The numbers of people that are seeking out people to pay just to listen to them. Again, praise the Lord for that. If you're a counselor and you've done that in your life, praise the Lord for that calling on your life. But the world so abuses people and beats people down that they often find themselves recoiling into a life where nobody will be a part of it anymore. They'll just get to the place where they just live as a recluse, or they'll just become ineffective in life and they'll just abandon themselves to their own way of living and forget everybody else out there. Why? Because they felt the weight and the abuse of life, which is what the sinful nature is given to, finding fault with each other. How many of you all, even now, can go back in your minds and you can hear conversations where people condemned you? 
How many of you all had coaches or teachers or people that were not godly and they did everything they could to beat you down? I've told you one of my stories in my life um, was the day I walked into my chemistry class at Tech. It has nothing to do with Tech, but I just happened to be going to school there my sophomore year and the chemistry professor walks in to 500 of us and says, my job is to fail you. Thanks. And he was successful, at least in my life. I've had coaches throughout the years that didn't lift me up as a player, but beat me down instead of what a coach, in my opinion, should do. But that's the way of the world. Complain to others, beat them down, push them, force them, create them into something that God has never intended them to be, put them in a box, all in an attempt to make them something that they may not ever be. And instead, they go the other direction. How many military men and women have had to come off of the the field that they've served in because of what they've been through and and how they were treated, perhaps, and only to have to go to people who can help them? And again, praise the Lord for that. How many of you have come from broken homes, abusive homes, where the things that you remember most are the negative and condescending words of your parents or your grandparents or someone that was in charge over you? How many people have worked in environments where you know you're just a number? And if you're here today, great. If not, we'll get somebody else. That's the mindset of everything because you're just here to make money. How many of you all have been anything other than just felt that way? I know a person right now who was raised in an abusive home, still hurting after many, many, many years of being out of that situation. This is the the strange part of how difficult the flesh is on us, is that you can be removed from a situation for many years, but the reality is, and if you understand counseling, you know that we will grow in our physical lives, we'll grow in our physical stature, and for the most part, we'll do well. But most every person has something in their life that was a point that was pivotal for them. And if it was a greatly negative pivotal point, then they'll stay stuck in that area. And, and when that situation or something close to that situation arises, whether it's an emotion or something, they'll go back to that and they'll feel it and they won't be able to get past it unless they deal with it in some special way. Some have that kind of dealt to them uh, very, very strongly. And, and people live with that throughout the remainder of their adult lives and sometimes never get past it. The point is here, Jesus is so different. He'll never do that to someone. He'll never cast them away. He'll never say to somebody, you are worthless and you have no value. And why is that? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 9, 6. Because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God, the eternal father, the Prince of Peace. Which is why we can say lastly, number six, as God's faithful servant, he will provide hope to all who put their trust in him. Hope to all who put their trust in him. Look at verse 20. Until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will have hope. You know, the reality is, beloved, most all of us, and I'm saying probably the higher 90-some percentage of people, can live through just about anything. And some of you have, as I've already alluded to, uh, lived through horrific things in your life. But when you lose hope, 
you've pretty much lost the game. Is that not correct? I mean, if you can hold on to hope, then you can accomplish a lot. And the stories of life are just amazing in that way. Hope is that thing that God puts in our hearts that just pushes us forward. You know, if I lose my hope that I'm going to lose weight, I give up. If I lose my hope that I'm going to have enough money at this job or that job, then I give up. If I lose my hope that my marriage is ever going to be anything successful as to what I want it to be, then I have a tendency to give up. When we lose hope, we lose everything, which is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we don't have the resurrection to hold on to, what do we have? In fact, he will say, we are to be the people who are the most pitied because we're holding on to something that's a fallacy if it weren't real. But then Paul will go on to say, but ah, it is real. And therefore, that's what we hold on to. And so simply what we're hearing here from Isaiah the prophet as Jesus says, don't tell anybody, is that he's saying, look, here's who the faithful servant is. He will provide eternal and everlasting hope. And scripture bears witness to that. Now, Jesus suffered greatly in his life, but he continually pointed to the glorious future that was coming, the eternal hope that we have. You and I look at our bodies and we see them failing. We look at our world and we see it failing. We look at people that we love and we see them doing tangents away from the Spirit of God. But what we should be also hearing at the same time is, don't give up hope. Why? Because our Father has fulfilled his mission through his son. In fact, if you listen to the last chapter of scripture, you find out that we really do win. Can we just get an amen out of that? I mean, in all that you're going through, and I know what you're feeling in this life, the last two years have brought this to a great culminating point for most of us, is that, is it going to get any better? Well, it may. There will be rises and falls. But it, I hate to be the downer here, but the reality is things are not going to get better the way we want them to get better in this life. But it's coming. It's coming. Listen to what Jesus or what yeah, Jesus says. John writes this in Revelation 19. You'll remember this from our study a few years ago. The beast was seized, that's Satan, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Now this is yet future. And those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, that was Jesus, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And what John is doing there and the Lord is doing there is he's giving us a hope to hold on to. That you and I have won the game, beloved. I mean, really, the truth is, you and I should be the models of, yes, feeling the pain and the pressure of this life, along with the world, so that we can identify with the world. That's what Jesus did. But also be the voice of hope. Saying, look, don't despair. Don't give up. Don't let your life go to nothing. Why? Because there's going to come an end to all of this. It's going to be glorious if you put your hope in Christ. He will finish what he has accomplished, what he has been commanded or given 
the task to do. Why? Because he is the faithful servant. He will do it. And that's why Isaiah can say in verse 21, the Gentiles will hope. They'll hope. And so will every Jew, by the way, who puts their hope in the faithful one. So until then, we, you and me, strive to be the servants that God has called us to be as we look at Jesus. He's always our model. Keep our eyes focused on him. What would Jesus do in this situation? How would he respond to this? What would he say in this moment? Would he be patient? Should I back up? Should I think about it a little bit before I send this email, before I send this text, before I make this phone call? What should I do here, Lord? Always focusing on what the Lord did and how he would respond in certain situations. And then if he doesn't give you a direct answer, trusting him that he's guiding you through it all. He is the example. If Jesus were willing to do so much for us, then surely we can trust him enough to be faithful to the work that he has left us to do. Right? Because we're safe. Isn't it glorious to know that we can live every day as if it's a party? I mean, you think I'm crazy. Well, the reality is that's how our mind should be. We should live every moment of our day as a party. Because it's one. I mean, it's, it's done. Do we feel the weight of the world? Of course. We feel the sadness of the world. We feel the effects on us. Yes. But internally, we should be experiencing the joy of a party. Because it's done. Why? Because not you and me did it, but because Jesus did it. He fulfilled it all. All right. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth of who your son is. Over and over and over we have the message of, look at my son, look at my son, look at my son. He is the one who I am well pleased. Father, we know that there's nothing in ourselves that can please you. And that's why we have such hope in what you have done through Jesus. Thank you for his, the precious gift of eternal life Lord, may we seek to live every day serving you, again, because of what you've done. And Lord, as we take this little cup of bread and juice and we look at your scripture, we pray that you would help us to have a mind now just reflecting on the glorious truth that you have completed everything that you set out to do. We praise you and ask this in Jesus' name.